Well, good morning to everyone. Good to see each and every one of you here today. And uh, um, as we go to our message, I just want to be reminded of one very important thing. Pastor Woody asked me to speak on the election and voting and so on. And the other night at prayer, Pastor Brennan, in his prayer, uh, said something so important for us to remember. And that is, is our dependence is not on any of our leaders. Our dependence is not on this election. Our dependence even isn't on our country. Our dependence is on God. And that is the thing we have to remember. And the thing is, here's the good thing. God has not been termed out. <laughs> he is still on his throne. And he is, is just who he was forever in the past as he will be ever in the future. And the good news is is that all his characteristics are still in place. And all his promises are still in effect. And that's great news. And so we can take comfort uh, in that. And so uh, just join me in prayer as we, uh, as we take this look. Father, we are grateful for, uh, for our country. We are grateful for that. Uh, and we are grateful for how you've blessed us. And we're grateful for how you hear us when we call to you. And so we call to you now to bless our country. Uh, we uh, ask a blessing on our leaders that are currently in, in power and those who may come into power after uh, next uh, week from Tuesday. And so I just ask you today to guide my lips. And I just pray that uh, we all will be drawn closer, a little closer to you today and uh, have a little better idea what your will might be in regards to how we go forward. And, uh, and we just praise you now and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, <clears throat> I think I'm not the only one that would say it feels like, as a country, we are being swept away. And we're being swept away in a destination that doesn't seem good, and it seems dangerous, and it seems like, you know, it's, it, we're headed for trouble. It seems to me almost as like we are on a big rig headed over Donner Pass, and you get to the top and it said, caution, 5% downgrade for the next 30 miles, and we get over the top, and we're headed downhill, and we go to apply the brakes, and our foot goes to the floor. And we are panicked. And what in the world? We, and we are praying that we will come to an upgrade to where we can get this thing somehow. We can get it stopped. Or at very worst, you know, there will be a runaway truck ramp and we can direct it in that so that we, will, we won't crash and burn. Because and, and, that's where we're headed. And nothing we can do seems to change things. And that's how it seems today in our country. To me and perhaps many Many of the rest of us. Well, the elections are all about leadership. That's really at the bottom line. That's what we're looking at here. And I want, to, I want us to take a look. I think that uh, we need to take a look uh, at a few things. How did we get on the path we are today? How did we first climb into that truck that's going to head down Donner and spin out of control? Where did it start? 
And people would maybe point to one certain event. I mean, it's like, how far back do you want to look? You know, and you can probably find something uh, to support uh, your position on that. And I want to submit to you that as a country, we got on that truck. We headed down the path that we are on today in 1962. And in 1962, something happened. In 1962, there was a case brought to the Supreme Court of the United States, and the name of that case was Engel versus Vitale. And the plaintiffs uh, brought suit in saying that it was unconstitutional to have prayer in school. And they brought that to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court ruled in an eight-to-one decision that prayer in our schools was unconstitutional. You know, this was not, this is interesting, this was not a five-to-four nail-biter. Eight-to-one, the justices ruled that it was unconstitutional to pray in school. And they found that, you know, it violated the, the, the so-called establishment clause in the Constitution. It says that Congress shall make no law in regards to the establishment of religion nor the free exercise thereof. Thereof, And so they, made, they got it wrong, I think, absolutely got it wrong. Any one of us here who has a basic understanding of our country's history knows one thing, and that is, is that our country, in large part, particularly in the early days, even before we were a country in the colonial times, and even before the colonial times, our country was populated by people that came from from Europe for religious freedom. And what they were looking for was freedom from being in a place where they said, you know what, if you're in our country, you've got to be a Baptist. Or if you're in our country, you have to be a Presbyterian, and or whatever the religion may be. And if you didn't, there were serious consequences to that, and they wanted to avoid that type of situation in the United States of America. So that in the U.S., you know, you were free to be a Baptist or Presbyterian or Catholic or Lutheran or whatever it might be, but you were not compelled to join any one of those churches. There would be no state church. And that's what the whole Establishment Clause was about. And the, the Supreme Court of the United States in 1962 got it all wrong. I want to read for you this, this case, Engel versus Vitale, uh, was a case that was brought by people in the state of New York. And here was, here was the prayer that they brought suit over. Here was the prayer. Very simple one. It said this. It says, Almighty God, we acknowledge our dependence upon Thee, and we beg Thy blessings upon us, our parents, our teachers, and our country. Amen. Now, I don't know why anybody would take fault with that, take objection to that, find offense in that. But they did, and the Supreme Court of our country found that this was not constitutional to pray this in our schools. Leadership at the highest level of our judicial system failed. And the ramifications of that I believe, are incalculable. It was the first domino to fall, if you will, I believe, in in taking our country down the path that we have been on ever since and are on to this day that it desires to exclude God 
from our culture and our government and our civilization and our country. This was the first domino to fall. The second domino would fall soon. In fact, the next year, in 1963, our same Supreme Court again voted 8 to 1 in the case of the Abington School District versus Shemp that Bible reading would not be allowed in our schools. Domino number two fell. And again, leadership at the highest level in our judicial system failed us. And there would be dire consequences for our country. In fact, the consequences to our country of those two Supreme Court rulings, I believe, were almost immediate. And they could be seen almost, you know, it's like, this is a knee-jerk reaction. Now, some people may say, oh, it's just coincidence. I submit to you, it was no coincidence. What happened following these two rulings in our country in the 1960s? Hmm? Drug use became rampant. You know, if you follow the statistics on drug use as you track them through the 30s and 40s, when they were taking and keeping these statistics, we saw drug abuse in our country just track along at a very low level consistently all the way through the 40s, the 50s, and the 60s. Guess what happened in the 60s? Skyrocketed. Coincidence? I maintain not. What else happened? We had the so-called sexual revolution, which is still going on to this day. What else happened in our country in the 1960s? We had, in my view, a massive failure of the executive, listen, the executive branch of our government. How so? What else happened in the 1960s? We had the Vietnam War. And our leaders in the executive branch of government failed to make a compelling case for the rationale behind this war. What was the end game? What was the goal? Why were we doing this? They failed to make a compelling case before our citizens as to the Vietnam War. And what did we see in response to that? Thousands, millions of people were involved. They, they were, they were dumbfounded as what, what is all this going on? They're confused and, and, and angry. And you saw the, you saw the demonstrations and you saw the rioting. You saw, you know, civil law breaking down. Why? Because the executive, executive portion of our government failed. Leadership is important, and when leadership fails, it's a problem. It's a big problem. Well, the failure of the executive branch of government in the 1960s would be followed by another one in the 1970s. In 1972, we had the Watergate scandal, where the highest person in the executive branch of government would end up resigning. Shortly after that, in 1973, we have the most catastrophic ruling in our Supreme Court, I believe, in our nation's history. And that, of course, would be the Roe versus Wade decision. Now, the Roe versus Wade decision was a 7-2 decision. So it was slightly better than the 8-1 to decisions we saw in the, in the early 1960s. But, of course, it ruled that a woman had a right to kill her unborn child. And the rationale behind that was some sort of thing of privacy. That somehow privacy superseded the right of this young child to live. And because of Roe versus Wade, we have to date 
well over 50 million and counting precious babies that never saw the light of day. And the loss, that loss to our country, we can never calculate. What, those, what would the, those people contribute today to our lives today? We have no way of knowing. They never saw the light of day because that, light was, that life was snuffed out before it ever could reach the light of day. And all of this was sanctioned under the approval of our government. Leadership matters. And when leadership fails, there are big problems. And we're seeing that today. Well, what else we see? Well, we've, we saw the legislate, I mean, the judicial and the executive branches of our governor fail in leadership. And where would we turn as a culture? Where would we turn to get some sort of stability and wisdom and direction in our lives? Well, we should have been able to turn to our churches. That would be the one place you would say that we should be able to turn to where we could get that kind of direction to our lives. Unfortunately, obviously not in all cases, but in too many cases, leadership in our churches failed. You saw the abuse scandal in the Catholic Church. You saw the scandals ongoing to this day, the scandals in the, in the world of the Protestant church where we had moral failings. We have to this day, and we see it on TV right now, Protestant leaders that are so addicted to power and money at the expense of Christ's true message that have just sullied the name of Jesus and destroyed the credibility of the church in many people's eyes. The church failed. The church failed in its leadership. The, uh, the prophet Jeremiah wrote in, in Jeremiah chapter 5, verse 30 to 31, he says, An appalling and horrible thing has happened in the land. The prophets prophesy falsely, and the priests rule on their own authority, and my people love it so. But what will you do at the end of it? Our churches failed in their role as leadership and guidance. You know, the situation where we find ourselves today in regards to a lot of these other issues that we are looking at right now had their root, I believe, in our churches. And in this sense, I said, the churches had every opportunity to say, Thus says the Lord, and this is what we shall do, and this is what we shall believe. And we shall insist that in our churches, we will have leadership that is just the way the Bible has designated it to be. And we will designate leaders just as the Bible has prescribed. And so if you look at 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, and then later in Titus chapter 1, the Bible makes it very clear what leadership in our churches ought to look like. Churches, however, hoping to be culturally relevant, abandoned, abandoned those things in too many cases. And so the first thing you saw was the ordination of women in our churches. Now, if you look at 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, you will see that God ordained 
leadership in the church to be a male position. You will see that either a male noun or pronoun is mentioned at least 11 times in those first, in those first seven verses. Now, make this very clear. Men are not superior to women. We're not smarter or better in any sort of way, but there's a news flash for our culture. Men and women are different. I, I think that is self-evident to you and me. Men and women are different, and God designed us that way. And that's a good thing. We complement each other. We're not superior to one another. We complement one another. In this case, God ordained leadership in the church to be a male position. I'm sorry, I didn't, I didn't make this up. God did. And our churches says, you know, I'm very cultural, so we're going to have women pastors. And after that, what happened? You see what happened. There would be creep, if you will, from, from that decision. And soon, soon thereafter, we saw in some churches the embracing of homosexuals as leaders. We see that in the Episcopal Church. And again, I didn't make this up. You can find it yourself if you go to the Episcopal Church website. They say in the talking of the ordination of Gene Robinson here you know, about 15 years ago as a so-called bishop in the Episcopal Church that one hurdle had to be overcome in order for, to, uh, for them to have gay clergy, and that was to have women as clergy. You set yourself off on that path, and you'll see where it's going to end. And where it's ending is this. You'll see, we're seeing this unfolding right before our eyes. I mean, this is incredible, if you will. The churches failed in their opportunity to show leadership to stem the tide of the blurring of the genders. Look at what we're seeing right now. You know, you see this thing, okay, now we've got, of course, Supreme Court decision, you know, uh, sanctioning so-called gay marriage. You know, it's no longer husband and wife, it's husband and husband, wife and wife. You know, where does that hit? Now, we're, now we see in this big controversy that's come down in transgender thing. Well, well, I, I kind of biologically a male, but, you know, inside me, deep inside me, a woman. I mean, I'm not getting this. I'm not understanding that. The genders are being blurred. And the necessity of a difference And the distinction between a man and a woman is being blurred. The next thing, and you'll be hearing more about this in the days to come, I I would predict, and that is a a situation called pangender. Some of you may have heard of that already. What's pangender? Pangender is you can be all genders at once. Isn't that interesting? That's an interesting concept. And so there's great confusion... There's great confusion in our culture about what gender is. And here's what I predict. Here's where it will end. You know, Jeremiah said this. He says, my people love it so. But where will it end? Where will it turn to in the end? Where it will end is this. It will end in the complete and utter destruction of the family. Because there's no need for a husband and a wife anymore. You know, there's no necessity for gender. We're all the same. We're replaceable. The churches failed in their, in their opportunity to say, thus says the Lord, 
And this will go no for. Unfortunately, our churches, too, too many, not all obviously, have, have gone right along with this, and now you're seeing more and more, you know, the churches will perform so-called gay weddings and stuff like that. Guess what? There are churches in our country that absolutely are very much in favor of Roe versus Wade. That is incredible to me, that our churches would do that. And we see the result. We see the result of that. And it's scary, and, and, and so on. So, where has the church failed the most? The biggest failure of the church, not all, too many, has been the failure to preach the gospel. The failure to preach the gospel. What they preach in these churches is some something, but it's not God's way of salvation. What this preached in many churches are what I refer to as a social gospel, a gospel of social justice. Now, social justice is a great thing. I'm all in favor of it. Most of us would, would say, yeah, that's a wonderful thing. That's not the gospel. That's not why Jesus came to this world and suffered and died and rose again on our behalf for it. That's not it. We have the so-called prosperity gospel, and we see the largest church in this country, church in Houston, whose pastor proclaims the prosperity gospel, and he tells you, you can have your best life now. In other words, you can have heaven on earth. And he's got a huge following and a huge following on TV, and I say to you, run, don't walk to the TV set and shut it off if that guy's on your TV. There is nothing wrong with being prosperous. That's a good thing. Not a, not a thing at all wrong with being prosperous. That is not the gospel. That's the not the gospel that saves. Too many churches preach what I call a benevolence gospel. And that is, you know, we're going to do a lot of good in the community. We're going to have, you know, food banks. We're going to have, you know, all sorts of these outreaches that way to the physical needs of people. Again, great things. These are wonderful things. We should all do this. This is not the gospel. The gospel, of course, is very simple. The gospel is that if we are going to be right with God, if we're going to have a home in heaven, it will be in spite of what we've done, not because of what we've done. If we have a home in heaven, it will be in spite of what we've done. It will be because of what Jesus has done for us. And the only way we get that is by faith, by believing him and trusting our eternal destiny. We place it in his hands. That is the true gospel. I mean, figure it out. Over 70% of this country claims to be Christian, and 60% of this country supports gay weddings, gay marriage. Over 50% supports Roe v. Wade. There's a disconnect here. The gospel is not preached in our churches too often. And as a consequence, there are millions upon millions of people that think everything is great. I'm in perfect condition when they are completely lost. Leadership matters, and leadership has failed too often in our churches. Again, I'm casting a broad net here, and I don't mean to include that, but it is too prevalent. And it is clearly an explanation for why we are in the position we are in today as a country. So, what do we do? What do we do when we can't look to the executive branch of the government for guidance, 
We can't look to the judicial branch of the government for guidance and wisdom. We know it's not there. We can't look to our churches. Too often it's not there either. It should be. We have the truth. So what, what do people do? What have people done? What do we do when we don't know what to do? What people have done is, is, is simply this. And, and this is not new. This has happened before. You know, they said, you know, I'm going to decide these things for myself. I can figure this out. And, and we've got this relativism that, that has become prevalent in our country, you know, and it says, if, if it's right for you, great. But that's not right for me. Something can be true for you, but yet not true for me. Now, I'm trying to figure out how something can be true and false at the same time. I'm having a difficult time understanding that, but that is, that is the attitude because we can't depend on leadership to define that for us. And so what have people done? You know, all we have to do is look at the book of Judges in chapter 17, verse 6, or Judges chapter 21, verse 25, and those passages, both of them say essentially the same thing. It says, in that day... There was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And I submit to you, that is where we are at today in our country. There is no king in America, particularly God is not king in America anymore, and everyone does what is right in their own eyes. How did that work out for the Jewish people back in the books of Judges? How did that work out? Not too great, did it? And it won't work out great here either. So, what do we need? We need wisdom. We need wisdom. And we need a different brand of wisdom than is being sold to us today in our nation, in our culture. You know, Proverbs 26, verse 12 says, Do you see a man that's wise in his own eyes? There is more hope for a fool than there is for him. We need a different kind of wisdom. The kind of wisdom that is being sold to us today in this culture. Uh, Pastor Brennan talked about this a few weeks ago in James chapter 3 in verses 14 through 16. He says this, he says, But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. This wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but is earthly, natural, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and every evil thing. Sound familiar? I think so. That is the wisdom that our culture is trying to give us, and they're expecting us to buy into it, and we've seen where that leads us. And it's not a good place. We need the right kind of wisdom. We need a different kind. That one's not of ourselves. And James chapter 3 again, verse 17, follow that one. He says, but the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering and without hypocrisy. I submit to you that this is the kind of wisdom we need as a nation. Um, again, in, in the book of James, we covered this here a couple months ago early on in, in James chapter 1, verse 5. It says that if any of us lack wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. And then it goes on to say that we must do that in an unwavering and faithful way. We must put our trust there. We must be sincere in that. I, I believe that if we are sincere and we truly are willing to set our own agendas to the side, 
our own preconceived ideas of what we want the answer God to give us already to be. And we do that, don't we, from time to time. We want God to put a stamp of approval on what we've already decided. But if we come honestly to God and say, listen, I need wisdom, I need your help, help me with this, give me wisdom, I believe God will answer that. When we do that sincerely, this is what we need. So, where does that lead us in regard to our election? We need wisdom in our election, don't we? We need, I mean, this is... This is beyond anything I think most of us have ever seen, what we are experiencing right now, particularly on the national, on the national level. And, and um, you know, I, I want to say this. I want to say, you know, while, while most of the attention is being focused, you know, focused on the, uh, on the national races, um, you know, there's state and local races that are extraordinarily important. And we want to we want to make sure that we're attentive and and looking at those as well. So what do we do when we need we need wisdom and how to go through this election? And it's difficult because it seems to me and maybe to you too that the choices at the top are death by lethal injection or death by strangulation. <laughs> and the candidate that I prefer is not on the ballot, and that's death by old age. <laughs> I mean, it, it's crazy. I mean, it's just like, I think many of us would say, this is the best we can come up with? You know, it's confusing. So we've got a difficult time. It's not, it's not you know, easy and, and stuff to make some of these kind of decisions. You know, and this is a true story. I didn't make this one up. This is actually excerpt of a, an obituary that was printed in uh, in Virginia earlier this year, Richmond's Times Dispatch, and this is part. It says, "Faced with the prospect of voting for either Donald Trump or Hillary Clinton, Mary Ann Noland of Richmond chose instead to pass into the eternal love of God on Sunday, May 15th." Many of us feel that way, don't we? Many of us, many of us feel that way. Well, so what do we do? What do we do? Where do we go from here? How do we go about proceeding on from where we are today? I think the first thing we have to do is recognize what the battle truly is and where it lies. And the Apostle Paul gave us guidance in that regard in Ephesians chapter 6. And in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, he said this. He says, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. So while you and I, you and I might get angry at these people, public people, that drive us crazy, I will say that some of these people are just like nails on a chalkboard to me. And they drive me crazy, and, and I get angry, and perhaps you do too. And the thing is, is what the Apostle Paul says, is, you know, we're barking up the wrong tree. We're barking up the wrong tree. That's not where the battle is. It's behind the scenes that we don't see. This is a spiritual battle. Um, you know, in first, I'm sorry, Second Corinthians chapter 4, verses 3 to 5, you know, I'm convinced that, that these people that drive us crazy, they really, they don't understand. They have no idea 
what they are doing. For, uh, Second Corinthians chapter 4 again. And it says, as even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving. Who's the God of this world? It's Satan. He's blinded the minds so they will not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. You know, so it's we have to understand it's not the people. It's not the people. It goes beyond it goes behind the scenes. This is a spiritual battle going on that that we're you know that we're we're not seeing. And what we see on the outside, these people are mere puppets if you will, in Satan's cause. You know, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 25 and 26 says this, that what we ought to be doing for these people says, with gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses, that would be a good thing, come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. What we see and the people we see on the outside are not the issue. I It's too easy for me to get caught up in that. And it's probably too easy for you too. And we're not seeing where the battle really lies. The battle really lies behind the scenes. You know, what did Jesus say when he was going to the cross? about those people that were crucifying them. He said, forgive them, Father, for they do not know what they are doing. And I am convinced that these people, which anger us so, that trouble us so, have no idea what they're doing. I submit to you that Barack Obama does not wake up in the morning saying, you know, I think I'm going to do something really evil today. I think that because of the policies that I embrace and the policies that I won't do one single finger to change, over 1,900 innocent babies will die today and never see the light of day. He doesn't do that. He thinks he's on the right path. He is deluded. He needs to come to his senses, if you will. And that, you know, we really need to be praying for our politicians in regards to that. They need to come to their senses. So what do we do? We need to take up the weapons that are at our disposal. The Apostle Paul goes on in Ephesians chapter 6. He said, therefore, take up the full armor of God. This is a spiritual battle we're fighting. We've got to be properly equipped, just like our, our, our precious people in the military need to be properly equipped. He said, we need to take up the weapons that are at disposal, the full armor of God. He says, so that you will be able to resist in the evil day. Sounds like today, doesn't it? And having done everything to stand firm. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth. Oh, how precious and scarce commodity today is truth, isn't it? But we need to gird up our loins. That needs to be part of what we put on when we start off in this, is we need to put on truth. And he goes on and he says, you put on the breastplate of righteousness. Well, what is the breastplate of righteousness? It's that righteousness that we get from Christ. You know, 2 Corinthians 5.21, it says, He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so we might become the righteousness of God in him. 
put on Christ's righteousness. That's what we, that's what we need. That's our breastplate. And he says, and, and you should have in your, shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel. You know, our feet are our foundation. If we don't have our feet underneath her, you know, if that's, we're going to go down. And we've got to have that. And we have to have that clear understanding of what the gospel of peace is. And he says that in addition to that, you take up the shield of faith. He says, which you will be able to extinguish the flaming arrows of the evil one. And finally, take up the helmet of salvation. She got the shield of faith. Man, that's the important thing. What does that guard? It guards our heart, doesn't it? It guards our heart. What does the helmet do? It guards our head. It guards our mind, our brain. You know, so those weapons that we've talked about right here, and now those are all defensive weapons. You know, that's something that we're, it says standing firm. You know, here's the, the battle's coming on, and, and here's our defenses. But Paul does give us two offensive weapons. And he goes on, and he says, and he says, put on the sword of the Spirit, which is the word and prayer. The sword of the Spirit, which is the word. You see, we have to become fluent in the truth. We have to become fluent in what the Bible teaches and what the Bible says. How can you recognize error when you don't know what the truth is? And, you know, it's an interesting thing. I'm told, I've never, I've never actually worked in that job, but I'm told that uh, if people are being trained by the government to detect counterfeit money and they're being trained as to how they're going to do this and so on they don't spend time showing them all the counterfeit stuff what they do is they show them real currency real $20 bills real $100 bills and they show them and they get they want them to become so familiar with the coloring, the tint, the texture of the paper, all the little basic fine details of real money. And when they know that, the counterfeit's obvious. And that should be the case with us. We have to be fluent in the word. That's one of our offensive weapons. And the other one, the other one is prayer. As, you know, as voters, we need to be informed. If all we know about the candidates and the issues that we're going to be voting on is what we see on TV and the things that we get in our mailbox, we probably don't know enough. We need to take the time to be informed. And then I suggest, as on a, on a, on a practical basis, in trying to sort out individual candidates as who's to vote for and stuff like this, is that we make a list of the important things, things that are important to us, and prioritize them, and, and, and grade each candidate, if you will, in regards to all those things. Now, some, some decisions that we may make in regard to some of these candidates will be clear-cut and easy. Some may not be so easy. So I submit to you that this is something that we need to do, and, and I think number one on that list... Now. The other things that are important to you and me, they may, I may list these other ones and they may be out of order as far as you're concerned. And I didn't necessarily put them in order of importance for me. That wasn't my intention. What I, my intention was is to make sure we knew who number one was, what the number one issue is that's at stake in this election as we, as we choose our leaders going forward. 
And I, and I submit to you that that, number one, clear-cut, head and shoulders above anything else, are matters of life and death. And under which candidate will more life be preserved? I submit to you, that is the candidate you must vote for. What is more important than life and death? Will you say some of these other things are more important than that and you're willing to sacrifice the lives of 1,900 innocent babies every day? I think not. What a, yeah, I mean, there's other issues of life and death. Don't misunderstand me. It's not just abortion. It's many other things. You've got to look at those and say, that is the number one. Under which candidate will more life be preserved? There's other issues. What about truthfulness? That's an important issue to me. And again, truthfulness is a scarce commodity to try to buy among our candidates in this, in this election. You know, I would say run, don't walk to the nearest exit on any candidate who has made a statement like this. I have a personal belief and then I have a public position. Run, don't walk to the nearest exit on that candidate. How would you ever know what that candidate truly believes? Oh, is this your personal belief or is this this your public position? Truthfulness is important. I say that's another thing we need to look. Which candidate will be the best supporter of religious freedom? That's that's an important one. It's going to become more and more an issue as time goes on. The assault is happening. The dominoes have continued to fall. We have gotten well down, down or grade, headlong, out of control with no brakes. The assault on religious freedom is ongoing and will get stronger as the days go by. Which candidate supports the policies that will protect and nourish the family? As I said before, the so-called sexual revolution that we are on and will continue to be on. And don't be surprised if there are weirder things coming down the pipe. I can feel fairly confident there will be. That's all an assault on the family. And so which candidate is better going to support and nourish our family? If our families go down, our nation is done. It never made it to the bottom of Donner. It crashed and burned well before then. What about national security? Which candidate do you feel is going to be strongest on national security? These are important things. Which, which candidate, if we're talking about on the national side, we're going to say which candidate will submit names to replace Supreme Court justices that will be undoubtedly be coming up soon, which candidate will, will submit names that are more likely to protect all these other things that are important to us? That's an important thing. On the local level, you have to understand that, the, that a president can submit a name, you know, to fill a Supreme Court uh, justice's vacancy, but it's got to go through the Senate. And so lest us think that, uh, you know, the Senate races are not important, I'd say think again. Think again on that. What about Second Amendment issues, our right to keep and bear arms? That's an important thing, too, isn't it? That's an important thing. And in, in certain cases, you know, the difference in candidates may be just a single one of these issues. You know, right to keep and bear arms. And I want to submit to you one thing, and that is that we have already relinquished a great portion of our rights to keep and bear arms when we deprive them 
of our students in our schools, they deprived them of their only two offensive weapons, the right, the right to the word and the right to prayer. We relinquished that already, and that's a terrible thing. But on the material level, I understand the right to keep and bear arms is a very important thing. And so how does your candidate grade on that? What about the candidate as far as their commitment to the rule of law? This should be an important thing for you to consider as you're voting. You know, I'm amazed at what we're seeing in, in, in our country in regards to this commitment to the rule of law. You know, there are initiatives on the ballot in Nevada and other states that talk about the legalization of recreational marijuana. Well, you know, guess what? That All those initiatives should be a moot issue because it's illegal on the federal level. And what are we doing? What the, what the federal government has done has chosen not to enforce some laws. You know, Eric Holder, the former Attorney General of the United States, came out several years ago, and this was instruction to the state Attorney Generals, and he said this. He says, if you think that there is a law in your state that is unconstitutional, you don't have to enforce it. Hello? I thought the determination of whether a law was constitutional or not, that determination fell to the courts. You mean to tell me the attorney general said, oh, I don't think that one's constitutional. I'm just going to ignore it. You know, I can tell you where that leads, and that leads to anarchy. When there is selective enforcement of the laws, we're headed in a bad direction. You know, if you got a bad law, get rid of it. Change the law. But you can't keep laws on the books and then choose not to enforce them. That's a bad idea. Okay. This next one. Which candidate most closely emulates what the Bible says? Now, at certain levels, this is going to be a tough one because you might have the difference between a candidate that's only about 16% in compliance to what the Bible teaches versus the other one that might be 5% or something. Unfortunately, on the national level, we really don't have. It's not a difference between 85 and 95%. You know, we just don't have that. And we have probably in, in, in some of the other races, some of the other decisions we'll make, we have candidates that vary widely in that. You know, and you, you, look at, you, look at, uh, you look at in the vice presidential area, there's greater, greater distinction between the candidates perhaps in that area. And in our state and local elections, you're going to find a greater distinction in that area. You know, which one will promote the, be the one best to promote and, uh, and live by biblical principles? You know, neither of these candidates at the, at the national level have any business being in our pulpits. That's for sure. You know, that's not where they're at. These are not spiritual giants. We are not in an election uh, of, you know, for a pastoral figure. It's just not there. It's not there. We're, we're, we're here to, you know, we're here to elect a, a leader of the country, but unfortunately we don't have particularly godly individuals that, uh, that uh, are on the ballot in some cases. So which one most closely emulates that? We need to pray for our leaders rather than to criticize them. I think I mentioned that a little bit before. You know, I'm guilty of that. Maybe I'm worse than most of you. 
But that's what we need to do. First Timothy chapter 2, starting in verse 1, says, First of all, then, I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions, and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men, for kings, all who are in authority, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godness, godliness and dignity. You know, that's what we want to pray for. We want to pray that, that God would give us those kind of leaders. And then finally, as, we, as, as we're closing up here, you know, we can point, we can point to other people. We can point to the failures of leadership on the Supreme Court. We can point to the failures in leadership on the executive branch or legislative branch of our government. We can point to the other guy. But the fact of the matter is, it really starts with us. In Second Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14, you know, a church spent quite a little bit of time you know, uh, several months ago, going over that passage. And that passage, to refresh your memory, says this, And if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, that I will hear from heaven and forgive their sin and heal their land. You know, we can point the finger. The fact of the matter is it starts with us. It starts with us. Will we humble ourselves and turn from our wicked ways? Will our churches start to insist that the leaders in these churches comply with the demands of 1 Timothy chapter 3 and Titus chapter 1? Will they insist that their church will stand for life and not death? All these things, it starts for us. We need to turn from our wicked ways. Each one of us individually has to look in the mirror and see what is needed in our own house cleaning going forward. That's what this passage says. It starts with us. It starts with us. But it's a good thing. The good thing, good part of this this little verse says, you know, if... I mean, I realize this was... This was first spoken in regards to Israel, but I believe God is consistent through the, through the ages. And it says this, if we will do this, what will be the result? He says, then I will heal their land. That's a good thing. You know, it starts with us, though. We can't just point the finger and say they need to change, they need to do that. You know, we very seldom have control over the other guy. We have a lot of control over ourselves. So it starts with us. You know, and uh, then I want to say, you know, you have to vote. It, it, it's not, you cannot opt out of voting. You know, there's some people that said, you know, I just can't do it. I can't vote for either one of these. And I submit to you, you have to. There is no sitting on the fence in this election. For even if you think you're sitting on the fence, you're not. A failure to vote is a vote for the winner. Okay. A failure to vote is a vote for the winner. You know, and, and I guess if you're okay with that, but, you know, you need to vote. You need to make, they're tough decisions, I understand that. So, you need to vote. Finally, you know, this has been a, <clears throat> this has been a message probably not real pleasant to hear in certain respects. But I, I believe a message that we, we need to hear, I need to hear. Uh, and... You know, in large part, it's a, it's a message about leadership that has failed. But the good news is, you know, our country has had some great leaders, has had some great leaders. And they led in times that were so difficult. 
so difficult. And so I want to share with you the prayer of what I consider to be a great leader. And he was president of this country in a very difficult time. And he went before the American people in 1944 upon the invasion of Normandy, and he prayed this prayer. And I want to read it to us so that we know that we can have great leaders. And we can pray that God would give us leaders like this again. And I understand that there's some, some of us may not agree with all the politics of Franklin Delano Roosevelt, and I understand that. Franklin Delano Roosevelt was a great leader. He was a great leader. I want to read this to you. This prayer goes like this. He says, Almighty God, our sons, pride of our nation, this day have set upon a mighty endeavor, a struggle to preserve our public, our religion, our republic, our religion, our civilization, and to set free a suffering humanity. Lead them straight and true. Give strength to their arms, stoutness to their hearts, steadfastness in their faith. They will need thy blessings. The road will be long and hard, for the enemy is strong. He may hurl back our forces. Success may not come with rushing speed, but we shall return again and again. And we know that by thy grace and by the righteousness of our cause, our sons will triumph. They will be sore tried by night and by day without rest until the victory is won. The darkness will be rent by noise and flame. Men's souls will be shaken with the violences of war. For these men are lately drawn from the ways of peace. They fight not for the lust of conquest. They fight to end conquest. They fight to liberate. They fight to let justice arise and tolerance and goodwill among all thy people. They yearn but for the end of battle, for the return to the haven of home. Some will never return. Embrace these, Father, and receive them, thy heroic servants, into thy kingdom. And for us at home, fathers, mothers, children, wives, sisters, brothers of brave men overseas, whose thoughts and prayers are ever with them, help us, Almighty God, to rededicate ourselves to renewed faith in thee in this hour of great sacrifice. Many people have urged that I call the nation into a single day of special prayer. But because the road is long and the desire is great, I ask that our people devote themselves in continuance of prayer. As we rise to each new day, and again, when each day is spent, let words of prayer be on our lips, invoking thy help in our efforts. Give us strength, too, strengthen our daily task to redouble the contributions we make in the physical and material support of our armed forces. And let our hearts be stout to wait out the long travail, to bear, bear sorrows that may come, to impart our courage unto our sons, wheresoever they may be. And, O oh Lord, give us faith. Give us faith in thee, faith in our sons, faith in each other, faith in our unified crusade. Let not the keenness of our spirit ever be dulled. Let not the impacts of temporary events or temporal matters of but fleeting moment, let not these deter us in our unconquerable purpose. With thy blessing, we shall prevail over the unholy forces of our enemy. Help us to conquer the apostles of greed and racial arrogancies. Lead us in the saving of our country and with our sister nations into a world unity that will spell a sure peace, a peace invulnerable to the schemings of unworthy men, and a peace that will let all men live in freedom, reaping the just rewards of their honest toil. Thy will be done, almighty God. Amen.
we close, we pray that God would give us leaders like that. We need leaders like that. And we need to pray that, that, we, that he would give us, that somehow he would provide that kind of leadership. Imagine one of our leaders today praying a prayer like that. We have not heard that, have we? We pray that, we would, that he would send us one. So let's close in prayer. Father, we are grateful for our country. We are grateful for the sacrifices so many have made to get us to where we are today. And, Father, we are desperate as a nation. We need wisdom. We need direction. We need leadership. And so we pray now. At this time, as we go to the polls and, and, and we cast our ballot, that, that you would provide that leadership, a leadership that would turn us back to you as a country, as a people. And, and first and foremost, uh, starting with each one of us, and our churches would stand on the truth and uh, be diligent to uh, insist upon uh, you know, following your Bible, your word, which is the truth. We pray for that. And as we close, we want to pray for those that are dear to us, that are, that are suffering with, with great illness. And we think of little Livy, and we also think of um, Sarah and, and Jesse's little nephew uh, back in Missouri that had a liver transplant and is having struggles with that. We pray that he'd be merciful to these tiny ones, ones that are, are, are so young and small, and, and we pray for them. We're grateful for all you've heard us in, in our prayers of healing in so many ways. We are so grateful for that. Uh, dismiss us now, and we just thank you and love you in Jesus' name. Amen.